Kathleen? Who's there? Who? That man looking at us and smiling. The nasty dog. My dear, don't you know? That's Red Butler. He's from Charleston. He has the most terrible reputation. He looks as if, as if he knows what I look like without my shimmy. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Rathlin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we finally got to the long-anticipated slash dreaded, is probably more accurate, Gone with the Wind, and... It's long. Fuck, it's long. It's really long. It is too long. Even in the 30s, people (laughs) were like, this movie's too long, which I kind of love. I do find it interesting that some critics were like, it could be as long as halfway and it would be just fine. I just want to dive right into the plot here. For those who haven't seen Gone with the Wind, it opens on shots of plantations interspersed with some shots of like, magnolia trees and slaves working in the field with this really sweeping and romantic music so at that point as david said to me fuck this movie forever before anyone even speaks the first line it's like the exact inverse of the opening crawl of star wars where you're like i don't know what any of this fucking means but i'm in on star wars you're like oh, I know what all of this is, and I instantly know what this entire movie is, and I fucking hate it. (sighs) After you have all of these shots and lots of credits telling who is in the movie, or maybe before, I don't know, it was four hours (laughs) from the end of the movie. But there is a card that says, you know, oh, the Old South, that last place where men were knights and women were ladies or some garbage like this. I'm going to pull it up because the actual fucking... I feel like we do need to have the language because it's so just horrendous. Opening credits prologue. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. So already I'm like, oh, fuck. Mm. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Citation needed. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair. Of master and slave. Okay, really just trying to slip that one in there, I guess. Yeah, that was the point where I went, how are we even justifying this movie? And the answer is we don't. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered. A civilization gone with the wind. Good fucking riddance. Yeah, for sure. Every single time this movie tries to make me feel sorry for Southerners, it's wild because it stacks the deck so much and then still utterly fails to build any sympathy for them. Because they're always like, oh man, I'm supposed to feel sorry for them for going and trying to kill a bunch of homeless people? This is what I thought I was getting into with that first card, but it turns out that the story of God with the Wind, which when we finally get into the actual story, which is about seven minutes into putting the movie on, follows our villain, Scarlett O'Hara, a spoiled, manipulative piece of shit, who basically destroys everyone around her and is an awful, horrible asshole. But 
She gets what's coming to her in the end. So is this actually that bad of a movie since everybody horrible ends up destroyed? I would argue yes, specifically because I don't think Scarlett O'Hara gets destroyed enough. That's fair. That is absolutely fair. I think that there is a slight possibility she might one day again experience happiness left open at the end of the film, and I would like that door shut. I feel like Scarlett O'Hara has never experienced happiness ever because she's such a black hole of a person. Yeah. But, I mean, maybe she experiences some measure of pleasure. She does like money. Yeah. So it's the day of the barbecue and ball at the nearby plantation, Twelve Oaks, where the boy that Scarlett is in love with lives, Ashley Wilkes, who, as my friend Helena put it, is, what if forgetting to add salt to a recipe, but as a person? Yeah, there's nothing to him and to the movie's credit question mark. It is pretty directly stated that the only thing she sees in him is that she can't marry him. That there is absolutely nothing about him to her except she can't have him. Yeah, see, I go back and forth about that because she did say as a, I don't know, teen at the beginning of the movie before she knew that he was going to marry Melanie that she was in love with him and that he was in love with her. But, you know, whatever. Leslie Howard plays Ashley, and this is perhaps the most incomprehensible love triangle on film, because what if a slice of wet white bread versus arguably the sexiest human being who ever walked the planet in Clark Gable? And this is like a toss-up of any kind? Yeah, I mean, it's also, she's just the fucking worst. I floated to you that I almost wished we bingled-lancered this movie, because I am just so fucking tired. Like, every time I remember this batshit awful woman's existence, (laughs) I just want to go take a nap. You know, what's really interesting to me is I always assumed that Scarlett O'Hara was like, an anti-hero or like a flawed protagonist but she's actually just from beginning to end a bad bad person there is nothing that she does that is in any way endearing i really don't understand what the whole like falling in love with this story is unless you're just horny for rhett butler which like arguably is a reason to like this movie. Sure, but also you'll apparently get like two decades of second chances. Right. Is I guess the fantasy of the film is like, I wouldn't screw it up that much. So... They go to the barbecue and she finds out that Ashley is going to marry his cousin, Melody, because apparently the Wilkeses always marry their cousins. Dig at the South? Like, I'm not really sure what that was about. This movie is openly racist, And does have, like, this rose-colored glasses for a version of the South that never fucking existed. But will also just periodically portray the South as the dumbest people alive in ways where I'm like, I'm not even sure that's true, and I hate the old South. Yeah, I mean, people definitely marry their cousins in, like, royal families or whatever, but I don't think it was a... Thing and I mean I don't know maybe it was none of my family ever married their cousins so yeah Ugh. anyway that we meet Melanie who is seemingly the sweetest kindest most gentle human being on the planet but actually 
She is constantly enabling Scarlet's terrible actions and the way that she hurts everyone in her life. And she's into slavery, so she really can't be a good person. Yeah, to me, it's that last one that really breaks it. Because the movie goes to such lengths to paint her as this, like, strange childlike figure that genuinely has no idea that Scarlet is the worst woman alive. And it's like, okay, I guess she really is so blinded by love for the people in her life that, oh, no, she's still cool with slaves? Okay, cool, 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 cool. I hate this movie. And then Scarlet confronts Ashley in a parlor and for the first of 48 times in this movie is like, no, you love me, you told me you loved me, And then gets really upset and then Ashley leaves and Scarlet throws a piece of porcelain against the fireplace in another person's home. And when it breaks... We discover that Rhett Butler has been lying on the sofa listening in the whole time. And he instantly wants to bone her for reasons that I can't really comprehend, except that, like, maybe he's really into bratty subs. I'm not sure. And she says that he's no gentleman, and apparently, like, he was cast out of his family for doing question mark? dueling maybe i think there was something about how he had like proposed to somebody or was like engaged to be married with somebody and he just left honestly it's really unclear the problem with rep butler is that other than he looks like clark gable there's not really much of an animating force to him he just kind of does things as the plot demands there is an animating force to him it's called clark gable and that's it Right, but his decision-making, how anyone feels about him, feels like Calvin Ball, is I guess what I'm trying to get at. And I'm thinking specifically of the part at the end of Act 1 where he decides to go join the Confederate Army. When Atlanta has already burned. Yeah, it's like going to a Harlem Globetrotters game and going, I just gotta sign up with the Washington Generals three minutes before the end of the game, because I think I can turn this thing around. (laughs) And Well, no, he even thinks that they're gonna lose. Right. Ugh, fuck. Then there's a bunch of conversation among the dudes at the party about the coming war, and Clark Gable is like, yeah, we're gonna lose because the South doesn't have shit. And all the other dudes are like, but we have honor. I'm gonna duel you over saying that we don't have honor. And then that doesn't happen. And then before the ball part of the party can even start, Lincoln declares war, so everyone runs off to go join up in the army the confederate army and then there's a whole bunch of shit about the civil war and we're supposed to care at all that melanie's brother dies in the war and scarlet married him like right before he went off to war in order to make ashley jealous which didn't work and a lot of people die they work in a hospital treating wounded confederate soldiers in atlanta she runs into rhett butler who has become a war profiteer yeah a blockade runner this is the first of multiple hour plus long stretches of this movie that i feel like giving it more credit than and then a bunch of stuff happens is like, it doesn't deserve it. Right. Just so fucking long is spent on, like, how scandalized everybody is that she goes to dance with Rhett Butler, even in mourning, and I don't fucking care. 
And then, like, people feel complicated ways about him being a blockade runner, and I don't fucking care. And then things are going well, and I don't fucking care. And then things start going badly because Gettysburg happens, and I don't fucking care. See, I care, because it means that the Confederacy is losing. I mean, sure, except that, like, it doesn't actually seem to have much of an effect on anything until we get to Atlanta being burned to the ground. And I do care about that, because good. Yeah, yeah. Ashley comes home for a furlough because it's Christmas and knocks up Melanie, then goes back to war. Then there's a lot more stuff with treating sick people in the hospital. And then they're evacuating the city because Sherman is coming through. And it's weird because Sherman is clearly the hero of this movie, and yet he never appears on screen. Mm -hmm. Except for one card that is just his name in capital letters with an exclamation mark. And I'm like, well, I mean, maybe they just couldn't find an actor who was the right type. I don't know. But Sherman is marching toward the sea and he's going to come through Atlanta. So they evacuate Atlanta. And of course, Melanie is going to have the baby at that point. They can't find a doctor anywhere because the doctor is busy treating wounded soldiers who are being evacuated. And Scarlet's slave child, who is like 12? 13? Yeah, fuck. I'd already blocked this out because it's such a fuck this movie sequence. Oh, it's so horrific. Uh, Tells her that she knows everything about delivering babies, so it'll be fine. And then, of course, when it comes to it, she doesn't because she's like 12. And Scarlet slaps the shit out of this little girl. One of like nine times Scarlet O'Hara slaps the shit out of women for making a really good point to her face. Or just someone. She slaps the shit out of dudes. She's a big slapper, Scarlet (sighs) O'Hara. Yeah... Yeah. Anyway, they deliver the baby, but Melanie's really sick, and then for some reason... Clark Gable is riding through town as people are evacuating, and she decides that they have to take Melanie and Prissy and the baby and go to Tara, which is her family's plantation, and get out of Atlanta. So they get a horse and a carriage, and they get out of Atlanta while Atlanta is literally on fire. And then when they get clear of it, Rep Butler is like, cool, I'm going to go join the Confederate army. Now that it's clear, we're going to fucking lose and leaves them. They get back to Tara through like the rain and the mud and whatever. And her mom is dead from typhoid. Yes, from there's a very strange sub sub plot that like almost starts out the film about this white slave overseer has knocked up someone they just keep referring to as white trash. That made me think, like, in the book, he probably knocked up a slave, right? Like, that would make more sense from the way they react to it. I mean, hell, I don't know. The Antebellum South was really weird about shit. Like, they got upset that Scarlet was gonna dance in morning wear, even though... The result of that was that Rhett Butler was giving like $150 in gold to the Confederacy as a fundraiser. So like, I don't know what their issues are. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, she died of typhoid fever going and like trying to treat this woman they keep referring to as white trash throughout the whole movie. 
the way everyone treats her, it's like she intentionally gave Scarlett O'Hara's mom typhoid, which I don't think that's how that works. But anyway. I mean, one can do that, but that's, uh, I don't think that that's what happened. Right. It wasn't like she brought her infected blankets or something like fucking Andrew Jackson did to the Native Americans. Like, she was just sick and Scarlett's mom was a nurse-ish type thing. Anyway, the only people left in the house are her two sisters, who are also spoiled brats, but are not as horrible, just because, I guess, Scarlet gets to all the terrible shit before they can. Her dad, who has kind of lost his mind. Mammy, who was her wet nurse, her mother's wet nurse, and I believe her- oh no, just her, her mom and her. And one other slave who's a guy, like an adult man. There's no food, and they have to, like, do farming on their own as white people. Oh, the humanity. Yeah, and she goes out and gives the big dramatic speech about how she'll never go hungry again. That's like, wow, this experience has really changed her, and the music swells dramatically, and we go into an intermission, and then we come back, and she's the exact same piece of shit she was for the first half of the movie. I mean, basically, yeah. Like, just- Yeah. (laughs) Except that now the Civil War is over, and the South lost- And I have to say that the critics at the time overwhelmingly thought the first half of the movie was the better part of the movie, which I don't understand. That's where they spent all the money. And that's the, like, only redeeming thing, even close to a redeeming thing about this movie, is, like, you look at all of the sets outdoors, and you look at all the outdoor shots, and you look at the outfits and the set dressing and you go like fuck this must have cost so much money yeah but in the second half they have the big house in atlanta with the chandeliers and the staircase and the stained glass window and there's lots of expensive costumes but i guess they don't literally burn atlanta so you know right they have an entire fake town they burn down right for me (laughs) watching this movie the first half was by far the most painful to watch because there was all this stuff about oh, we've got to fight for the cause and blah, blah, blah. Give money to the cause, the cause. And I'm like, the cause is slavery. Stop trying to make this a, like, noble fucking thing. And then the second half is like, well, the Confederacy lost and now all of these people are miserable because they're making each other miserable. And I'm like, great. That's at least some level of small karma for these assholes. Well, no, no, no. The North is responsible for everything bad that happens to Scarlett O'Hara for the entire back half of the movie, except for her daughter's death. Right. Which is also not her fault. Right. I mean, to be fair, her daughter's death is actually not her fault, but it's also not Rhett's fault. Yeah. And she blames it on him. Yes. So Scarlett decides that she's going to marry some other dude she doesn't love who is her sister's fiance because he has money and she uses that money to start a lumber mill with Ashley and then they get really rich. So I have a question about that, which is that the reason she's marrying this guy is because they need to pay $300 in taxes for those Terrible Yankee carpetbaggers who definitely were very mean to slaveholders for no reason. Why would you be? He was going to marry her sister. Yes. Why would that not get them the money? Uh, uh, It probably would have, but then Scarlet wouldn't be able to hurt someone. Sure, 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 sure. That, sure. 
And, but like, I mean, I, everyone treats it like this thing she was forced to do, and it was such a huge sacrifice for her. Like, except the sister, who understandably is like, you're the, a fucking monster. Yeah. But like, Ashley, the other sister, everyone is like, oh, if it just weren't for this $300 tax bill, you wouldn't have to do this. And it's like, she already doesn't have to do this. This doesn't make any sense as a plan. No, it's her sister. Her sister can get the money for their family house. (sighs) Anyway, but they do start a lumber business with Ashley. And at one point, there's a really, really brutal, for anybody watching this from this perspective, moment. Where Scarlet decides that she's going to hire prison labor to do the work in the lumber mill. And obviously, like, a lot of the people who are going to be in this prison labor company are former Confederate soldiers who were arrested. And Ashley says, you know, oh, I just can't deal with the idea of having people work who don't have any choice in the matter under the lash or some bullshit like this and scarlet says to him well you didn't have any problem with slaves i had a moment where i was like oh my god but then the movie completely undermines it by giving ashley this line where he says well we didn't treat them that way and i'm like what the no that's Ah!" i hate that i hate that like well we were nice to our slaves So it doesn't count? To be clear, while all of this is going on, the two slaves that stuck around, there's no justification for that at any point, of course. Neither of them seem to be getting paid. They just, like, love Scarlett O'Hara so much because she's such a kind and generous person in fucking opposite day, (laughs) I guess, that they fucking stick around for no reason. Yeah. Anyway, Scarlet is, you know, doing her usual thing where she's, like, not following the rules of society, which I suppose is, like, interesting for about five minutes until you're like, oh, but you're also a terrible person. You're not punk rock and feeding the homeless. You're a money-grubbing piece of shit who is totally okay with slavery and prison labor and who spends decades trying to fuck your best friend's husband And marries your sister's fiancé. You're a terrible person, Scarlett O'Hara. Anyway, she rides a carriage by herself without a man. And so she gets attacked by a white carpetbagger guy and then a freed slave or maybe somebody who came down from the north who is black. And there's like a moment where you think that maybe she's going to get raped. But then Sam, who is one of these slaves who is stuck around at Terra, sees what's happening and saves her. And those two men, I guess, get killed? I mean, it's implied that that's why they go do the raid on the entire shantytown. Oh, that's not implied. That's set out right. But I think those two guys initially just get thrown in the river and die. So there's no real reason to have to go to the shantytown. Well, I mean, either way, there's no real reason to have to go to the shantytown. But it's like 10 feet down to the river. They just got thrown in the river and then they ran away. Okay. But like, who cares? Which, like, I'm not saying that it's okay to try to rape a woman, even if she's a horrible monster. But there's also no reason to do this raid on the shantytown. So Ashley and Frank, who is her sister's former fiance now her husband go to basically attack these poor people who have the misfortune of being associates of those two people who tried to rape scarlet 
Rhett comes by the house and is like, where is Frank? Where is Ashley? He knows what's going to happen. So he goes to try to stop them because the North is still occupying the South. And if they're caught, then they'll get hanged or whatever. Then the Northern soldiers come to the door and are like, where is your husband? Where is Ashley? And she says that they went to a political meeting because that's what they told her. Apparently in the book, by the way, they're actually members of the Ku Klux Klan in no uncertain terms. Oh, cool. Yeah. Definitely cool. So I guess I can say like at least the movie changed that. Then Ashley and Rhett and the doctor who was their friend who I guess also went come home and they seem to be super drunk and the northern soldiers are like, you're under arrest. Rhett says, oh, but we weren't at the place that you think we were. We were hanging out at this brothel with my friend Belle, who like is an extremely minor character and has a sub 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 plot and I don't care about it. So the northern soldiers are like, well, I mean, if you give me your word as a gentleman, then we'll believe you. And then Red says, as a gentleman, you totally have my word. But we already know he's not a gentleman, which I guess is supposed to be funny. Anyway, they leave. Ashley has a bullet wound because he got shot in the raid and Frank died. Now Scarlet is free again. And Rhett proposes to her literally like an hour after the funeral where the house is still set up for the funeral. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm giving you nothing because I fucking hate this movie. It's just everything you say. I'm reminded how much movie is left. How much more bullshit we have to cover before we've covered all of the plot of this movie? Uh. So Rhett and Scarlet get married. They go on honeymoon in New Orleans. They have a lot of sex. She has a baby and then she is upset because she doesn't have an 18 and a half inch waist in a corset anymore. So she's like, we can't have sex anymore because I don't want to have another baby. But that also doesn't stop her from snuggling up to Ashley. And then she's busted by Ashley's sister who tells everybody in town that Scarlett is trying to bang her brother. And then Rhett hears about it and makes Scarlett go to... Ashley's birthday party, even though he knows that everybody there thinks she's a hussy. And she dresses in this really, really hot dress, which is actually one of the few moments in the movie where I was like, okay, this is cool, because she has a really nice dress on. She goes to the party and Melanie is like, oh, welcome, Scarlett. Let's meet everybody. Because Melanie, of course, is like sweetness and light, except for that whole thing where she's cool with slavery. So she's actually not a good person. Then Scarlet goes home, Rhett comes home wasted, Scarlet comes downstairs, they have a big fight, he picks her up and takes her up the stairs, and this is the scene that everyone refers to as a marital rape, which I kind of expected to be, like, a lot more hardcore than it is. I mean, I didn't expect them to show sex, but, like, as soon as he picks her up, she's not fighting him anymore, so I'm kind of like... Is this just drunk makeup sex? But, you know, whatever. They're both wasted and shouldn't be having sex anyway. And he is kind of aggressive with her. So that's not amazing. Except the next morning she wakes up and is like, Oh, yeah, I'm having a great time and I'm happy about everything because I got boned. And that's really, I think, what makes it the most nauseating. Yeah, I think like... The fact that that is so clearly there to try and fix it is the best indication that some bad shit went down. Right. I feel like if they woke up and they both had a hangover and were like, oh man, we totally should not have had sex last night. This was a bad scene. 
But yeah, the trying to put this ridiculous band-aid on it actually somehow makes it worse. Yeah, I mean, makes it clear what the, like, intention is, because they then so code it up to try and make it okay what happened. Yeah, it sucks. Rhett's response is not to feel great and to be like, hey, I shouldn't have done that last night and we should get divorced because I don't want to be with you anymore. She says no. He's like, fine, I'm going to take our kid and go to London. And to his credit, Rhett Butler is actually like a pretty good dad. Yeah. Surprisingly. Yeah. The kid doesn't like London, so he brings her home. Scarlet is pregnant and... She says, you know, I don't want to have this baby. And he says, congratulations, who's the happy father? And she says, it's you, dick. Uh, She doesn't actually say dick, but it's implied. And then he says something to her and she reels back with both of her fists to hit him on the chest. And he, having known her for decades, steps aside because he doesn't want to get hit. And she tumbles down the stairs and has a miscarriage. Then Bonnie dies jumping a fence with a pony. Melanie is sick. So Scarlet and Rhett go over to their house. And all of this apparently happens in like a day or two. Yeah, I mean, it's unclear, but there's absolutely no plot other than this happening. There's no time for anyone to discuss how long anyone's been grieving. It's like the movie has figured out you don't actually give a shit about Scarlett O'Hara, so it's just trying to stack the tragedy deck so fucking high that you have to. Right. So Melanie is dying from being pregnant, and she dies. Rhett leaves, and Ashley is sad, and Scarlett is consoling him. And then, in the moment where he just lost his fucking wife, she's like, You never loved me, really! You just strung me along for years! And I'm like, there is a fucking time and a place, Scarlett O'Hara. Also, he did not string her along for- it's just, uh... He didn't! Yeah. Like, there were times where they made out, which were not cool- it wasn't cool, Ashley. Don't do that. But, like, also, he's a slave owner, so, like, he's a shitty person. Not expecting that much from him. He has, like, a half-assed version of the Clark Gable we-shouldn't-go-to-war speech at the very beginning of the movie, too. He just kind of seems like the good German. Oh, totally. Just like, yeah, I'll go along with anything. Yeah, whatever, man. Who cares? Slavery, not slavery. Cheat on my wife, not cheat on my wife. You know, just, like, kind of, I'm down for whatever. You know, call me. <laughs> So anyway, Scarlett has this great revelation that actually she's loved Rhett Butler all along. And so she goes home to their house and he is packing because he's going to leave and go to Charleston to be with his family, who we have never met and never seen. And apparently he was disowned by them like decades before, but whatever. And she's like, no, no, but I love you. It was always you. And then he gives the frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn line. And then he leaves and she cries. And then it's over, and she has lost everyone important in her life. And it still doesn't quite feel like a vindication, but it's close. No, because the actual ending is her having the voices in her head tell her to go back to Tara, and it's so clearly supposed to be vindicating this thing, where everybody else in the movie is like, why do you give a shit about your dad's shitty plantation? Why are you so fucking obsessed with this place? And it's like, because it's a place she can heal and go back to, and she'll definitely get him back. 
And it's like, no, I want her to die in a ditch somewhere. Like, I don't, I don't want even the possibility of happiness to be dangled in front of her. Uh, yeah, that's fair. My takeaway is that she is delusional. Yes, I think like that's the happy ending is she has finally lost her damn mind the way her dad did and is just going to wander delusionally through Terra until she dies. And I truly hope that's the case. But the possibility exists that they will find love again. Maybe. And I don't like that. I'm just going to leave it where it ends, where she has lost everything important to her in her life. Except for her house, Ziz. Houses. Yeah. So this movie is not... God, I hate... This is such a difficult thing to say, because this movie is reprehensible in content. But it is actually extraordinarily well made. And there's a line that Pete Buttigieg has in his speech on national security where he's talking about China and how they are using technology for the perfection of dictatorship. This movie is using technology for the perfection of Confederate sympathy propaganda. There's some really incredibly beautiful shots. The technological stuff is very impressive. The costumes are extraordinary. It's just like, my God, what a gigantic waste of money for what this movie is. Honestly, I thought those two opposing forces were going to be more of a fight for me on this rewatch. Like, I thought the fact that this movie is such a technical leap forward for the medium was going to at least fucking hold my attention. Like, this movie's so fucking boring when it isn't racist. It takes forever. There are times when it's not racist. <laughs> like, there's a couple of scenes. What, like, that's the thing is, it's either, like, romance or racist. Like, those are the two modes. Either I need to care about Scarlett O'Hara's happiness, or this movie is just full-bore racist. Usually it's both. But when it's only one of the two, those are its two modes. Yeah. The script is so melodramatic and so just over-the-top unbelievable. It feels like a soap opera, and I don't mean that in a positive way in this context. Like, sometimes soapy things are great, but not in this case. I also don't think Vivian Lee is very good. I don't either. Her acting is so extreme. Yeah, they made such a big deal out of how many people were tested for the part. And that, like, every big name in Hollywood, and you just go down the list and you're like, would have been better, would have been better. Oh, that would have been an interesting choice. Would have liked that. Except that I don't think they would have been better because George Cooker, who was initially going to be the director for this movie and was fired like a couple of weeks into production, was still coaching the actors. And Vivian Lee is an extraordinary actor. I mean, I think we will get to her in Streetcar Named Desire. But I mean, she really is a phenomenal actor, but the portrayal is so petulant and bratty. I mean, at a certain point, this is a grown woman and there's no complication to her at all. She's just fucking mean and greedy. I actually think the problem is that Vivian Lee keeps playing her as this complicated figure. That, like, it has some tragedy to her. I think, like, a Catherine Hepburn would have just gone full-bore goddamn demon with her. And I kind of would have preferred that. Yeah, I don't think- uh, Catherine Hepburn is totally wrong for this role. She just doesn't- yeah, she's, like, way too cool. And, I mean, Scarlet does have to be bratty to an extent, but we should see an evolution from bratty 16-year-old Scarlet to evil, villainous- 
35-year-old Scarlet, you know? Do we? I know, I said we should. Yeah. And we don't. There's no progression. Like, the scene that she has with Ashley at the end where she's like, you never loved me, could have absolutely been the same character at the same age from the beginning of the movie. Yeah. I will say that Olivia de Havilland is much better and is so angelic that she's the only character that I occasionally forget is also a slave owner. I don't think Rhett Butler owns any slaves, but like maybe he does, who knows. The fact of the matter is, Clark Gable is literally just playing Clark Gable. Yeah. So I can't say, oh, well, Clark Gable is great as Rhett Butler, but I also can't imagine anyone else in this role. But he is playing the same character we've seen him play half a dozen times now on this podcast. For sure. And in better movies. I think, like, Leslie Howard acquits himself well as the most boring man on Earth. I actually think he's horribly miscast because... First of all, the writing for Ashley lends absolutely nothing, and that's exactly what Leslie Howard is doing. He's sticking to the script, which is fine, but I was thinking if you had somebody with, like, Jimmy Stewart's level of sort of tender, under-the-surface, smoldering sensuality, then you have an actual love triangle and not, like, what the hell is wrong with you, Scarlet? This guy is nothing. Yeah, but I don't want that. Like, I- (laughs) I want her to be a terrible person. So I kind of like Leslie Howard playing him as just a rock. She can still be a terrible person. Right, but it seems intentional to me that there's nothing interesting about Ashley. That she is just angry she couldn't have him. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think Leslie Howard does a good job playing a rock in a thankless role in this movie. (laughs) And I don't want to waste a better actor who brings some deep emotion to Ashley, because who fucking cares? Yeah, that's fair. That's that's totally fair. I will say that one of the things that surprised me in this movie was Hattie McDaniel as Mammy, because the way that her name has been used to apply to a particular stereotype is a lot less complex, actually, than Mammy is. I mean, Mammy talks shit about everybody a lot, and she yells at Scarlet and tells her to get dressed and calls people white trash and has some level of pushback in the first half of the movie and it kind of sucks that that disappears in the second half i guess the second half is really where she becomes the stereotype that the character's name applies to the second half is also the reason she wins an oscar for this performance and the reason besides trying to make itself feel like it's progressive that the academy awards it is that one scene where she's coming up the stairs talking about how Rhett Butler is reacting to the death of the daughter. Oh, yeah. Literally, when that scene started and she and Melanie were walking up the stairs together, I went, oh, this is the Oscar scene. Okay. Yeah. This is the best supporting actress moment. Because Olivia de Havilland was also nominated and is in the movie three times as much. Yeah. But yeah, I do think that it was definitely the Oscars doing their Green Book thing. Yeah. Look how progressive we are for giving this award to a black actor, even though the movie itself is so retrograde. Right. And like, even though she kind of has a range of like, what's going on internally in Act 1, basically everything she's got in Act 1 are sassy one-liners. And, like, that's really the only time the movie gives her a chance to let loose and act. Yeah. And she does really well. Yeah. But, like, that's kind of the only part where she gets to give a performance in all capital letters, you know? Right. I didn't watch it because it's about an hour long. 
uh, and I also didn't want it to influence my review, but apparently there is a video essay called Should We Still Be Watching Gone with the Wind that was recommended to us by somebody on Mastodon. I have no idea if it is any good, but as far as should you watch this movie, you could watch it. It's an hour long, and that's still a quarter time than this fucking movie. Yeah. As to rating it, one yeah i was prepared for you to go as high as a three and i would be like ah okay but yeah one i mm, part of me is like two the cut it's very colorful like i'm literally that's the level on which i'm complimenting this film look is like there's some every frame of painting paintings in here but, like, actually, can I just have the still frame? Because the moment it's in motion, there start being problems. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, artistry in pursuit of promoting the lost cause of the Confederacy is still fucking garbage. Yeah. I don't care how much lipstick you put on this pig. <laughs> Really, the only thing in this movie that I would even begin to recommend someone watch it for is, like, Clark Gable is hot. But if you want to see Clark Gable be hot in Technicolor, I'm sure there will be other opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, there's just there's just nothing really to recommend this movie over any movie we've watched, basically. No. It is more technically adept than other movies we've watched, but, like... This movie is very technically adept, so was Wizard of Oz. And, like, just watch that. Just watch that and don't watch this. Literally the same director, so... Yeah. So you could just watch it instead. Yeah, it's technically adept, but we live in 2019. There's gonna be way more technically adept movies that we can talk about later. And I don't even feel like it makes any sort of great leap forward technologically that... The Wizard of Oz didn't. Oh, for sure not. I was thinking so much about how, like, this sets so many bad precedents for what an Oscar movie should be. Like, there aren't really good lessons to learn here, but everybody picks up all these bad habits from this movie. This movie is overlong, but gets away with it because of the, like, technical wonder of the outdoor color shots, of how good the Technicolor shit looks. People will sit through your three-and-a-half-hour goddamn movie. It's not because the movie itself is inherently compelling. It's not. But people just make these overlong, sweeping epics after this with the, like, self-aggrandizing opening credit sequence that, my God, right. drags on forever. Like, there's just so many, in addition to the racism bad cinema habits that directors decide they need to do because this movie is so wildly successful at the Oscars. Right. So before we go to next week, we also had Chris on Mastodon listen to our Wuthering Heights episode. Okay. This is totally off topic, but recommended that the Wuthering Heights adaptation for people who hate Wuthering Heights, and I'm quoting his message, is Andrea Arnold's from 2011, not the fine Spinoche one from the 90s. It's grimy, unglamorous, clarifies the class and race dynamics of the two households, and it is also the only version of the story I know, including the novel, where I can believe in the obsessive passion of Kathy and Heathcliff. Okay. If you really were, like, tromping up the bit for a good Wuthering Heights adaptation, 
Take the one from 2011. I'm interested, but not interested enough to spend more of my life watching Weathering Heights. That is totally fair. <laughs> For next week, we are- what are we watching next week? Of Mice and Men. Of Oh, yeah, and it's the last one in 1939. Yeah. That's not gonna be a blast, but it might be a good movie. <laughs> yeah. As I've said, I've had to get really into movies to not hate movies because of this podcast. And I'm going to really need to like go out and watch something that makes me not hate film and recharge for a while before I can continue after this. Because God, this sucked up my whole day. And from minute one, I was like, oh Christ, no. <laughs> Why did I? Uh... Yeah, I definitely had a point where I was an hour and a half in and I was like, oh my God, there's still so much movie left. And then they got to, I don't know, there was like some obviously natural stopping point. And I was like, oh my God, how is there still so much movie left in this movie? Every time I would stop and look at how much time was left, I could not believe it. The amount of time you spend on the first paragraph of the plot description on the Wikipedia page. That's an hour and a half for six sentences that honestly still I think you could cut some stuff from. So tune in next week to find out if Elf Mice and Men is going to be in the running for the movie that should have beat God with the Wind because I can tell you, spoilers, we are definitely not picking it as the winner. Oh, for sure not. Christ. It may not make the top five. And until then... This was... This was... This was... And I wish it wasn't. It was for so long. It was for so long and so much. And why? Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Red, you go. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.